you're listening to sermon audio from Redeemer Church, where we are disciples of Jesus in life together, making disciples. So check out our other media, or to find out more information about our church, visit RedeemerSGF.com. This morning, um, as Chris had said, we are going to be finishing our series uh, in Psalm 119. So if you would, turn in your Bibles or on your devices to Psalm 119. We'll be in verses 169 through 176. So, this morning we are ending our series. We're in the last stanza of, of Psalm 119. And, and while um, we obviously haven't done an exhaustive series through this psalm, I feel um, Bobby and I have tried to find psalms that are representative, um, or at least stanzas that are representative of the psalm as a whole, so that you kind of get an idea of, of what the psalmist, the author, is trying to communicate um, about God's word and what that means for you and I. Um, so this morning we are going to be finishing that. We're coming back down um, uh, from the mountain of, of Psalm 119, and, and uh, hopefully we will uh, kind of get this all wrapped up and figure uh, what the psalmist was saying throughout the whole psalm. In his commentary on the book of Psalms, James Boyce reflects on Psalm 119 specifically as a mountain range full of, of peaks and valleys, and, and we've seen this already in our, our study last week. We saw uh, the psalmist was, was just coming out of one of those valleys and was starting his ascent back up the mountain, and he was reflecting on the eternal nature of the Word of God. And it was this really powerful and uplifting psalm as he's reflecting back on his own affliction and seeing how God's faithfulness through his Word had lifted him through it. This week, we are coming back down the mountain. We are um, in our final descent, as it were, um, from this mountaintop of Psalm 119. And, and uh, I feel as if his, um, his reflection there is, is accurate. It's peaks and valleys. Psalm 119 brings us up to the mountaintop, and then we see the depth of the affliction as well. So I've titled this message in light of that, as lessons learned from the descent. And I want us to look at, uh, in detail, at, at four lessons that, that the psalmist is trying to teach us through this, this final stanza, these last eight verses of the psalm. But before we jump into the text, um, I wanted to kind of highlight this idea with a story. So my junior year of college, um, I got the opportunity to go to northwestern Montana for a summer, uh, spend a summer preaching at a small church there, as a part of my internship requirement for uh, my school. And so uh, I was going to travel from Joplin, Missouri, 30-some-odd hours up to northwestern Montana, I mean, like, north-northwestern Montana. And uh, I was going to drive the whole thing by myself. And this opportunity came about in one of the many, but also um, very intense uh, phases, I guess, of my life. Um, I have a tendency to become interested in a certain thing, certain topic or subject, and go really hard after that for like a couple of months, and then I get bored of it and I move on to the next thing. I don't know if any of you are like that as well, but this all seemed to come about right around the time I was in my um, outdoors phase. I was all in on being outdoorsy and hiking and camping and, and survival stuff, and um, to, to illustrate that further, um, in all seriousness, I, I bought 
Um, not one, not two, not three, but four Bear Grylls uh, themed survival guides, um, including his autobiography, uh, Mud, Sweat, and Tears. Um, I purchased a large Bear Grylls themed uh, survival knife, a flint striker, and a little survival kit. So uh, I hope that you're getting the picture here of, of what I'm talking about. It was an intense phase, and I spent a lot of money that I didn't have on it, especially as a junior in college. Um, and my friends and my wife can attest to the fact that this is not a, an uncommon occurrence. Um, I, um, but I was in the middle of this this outdoorsy phase, I'm all hyped up on survivalist stuff and, and, you know, excited, and I'm literally heading to, like, the Bear Grylls of the United States in northwestern Montana, and I couldn't have been more excited about it. But on my way out to Montana, I was going to break this trip down into a couple legs. I stopped in Colorado Springs, Colorado, with a couple of friends who, who were going to let me stay with them for a couple of days just to break the trip up so that it wasn't going to be so daunting. And while I was there, uh, you know, they're very outdoorsy guys, so they were like, let's do all these cool things. So they took me up uh, Pikes Peak. Um, I don't know if, if you've ever been up Pikes Peak. It's pretty, um, not, a, not a, exactly a, a difficult thing to do. You can literally drive up and down it, but it's a really cool experience. You get to see on top of this 14,000-foot mountain and see for miles and miles. It's a really great experience. They uh, had me do this horrendous thing called the Manitou Incline, uh, which you've no, if you've never heard of that, I encourage you to Google it. Um, it is this stair-step incline up the side of Pikes Peak that is the, I think, the height of the Empire State Building, but at an incline that is obscene and horrible. And so you're literally just like crawling up this thing. But I guess like the U.S. Olympic teams use it to train, and, and they were like, 60-year-old men who are, like, lapping me up and down this thing, and I'm sitting here, like, struggling for every breath. And then we finished this three-day period with um, hiking up my first 14er, which is a 14,000-foot mountain. It's one of the many that this stretch of the Colorado Rockies has. And we um, were going to Mount Quandry, and we chose this mountain specifically because uh, it was assured to me that it was the easiest of the 14ers to do because it didn't really require any climbing or expertise at all. It's literally just a hike. And so I was stoked, um, and we started out that morning before the sun, started up through the tree line. That first 8,000 feet or so through the trees is fairly easy. You know, it's wooded trails. There's lots of switchbacks up and down. But as you get to about that 10,000-foot mark, that's when the oxygen starts to get a lot less, and there's a pretty decisive, like, line there of the trees. Once you get above 10,000 feet, there's no more trees because there's not enough, enough oxygen to sustain them. And it goes from being kind of dirt trails to being just rocks, just boulders that you're stumbling over the whole way. And so what went from being just kind of a leisurely hike that only took us about, you know, two hours to get up to that point like tripled in the amount of time it took us to get that last 4,000 feet because I'm crawling on these rocks just trying not to fall on my face and every like 10 steps I'm having to stop and catch my breath and, and get water and to make a long story short, we, we made it to the top of the mountain. It was absolutely beautiful, totally worth it. 
And as we're up there, you know, I'm just basking in this whole experience, and my buddy, the eternal killjoy that he is, turns to me and says, now the hard part. I look at him and I'm like, that wasn't the hard part? He's like, no, 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 Uh, we have to go back down the mountain. I was like, well, yeah. He's like, no, no, you see, in climbing, it's the descent that is where most people die. And he says this with a straight face, kind of, kind of jokingly, um, but he's, I, I'm looking at him like, what? And he's like, well, not, not on this mountain, but like, yeah, in mountain climbing, when people are going up and down the mountain, it's, most of the time people die when they're coming down. And I was like, and you're telling me this now? And so not only that, not only did he just give me a, a real you know, encouragement for going down the mountain, but then we get word from like one of the people who like volunteers on the mountain that there are a bunch of storms blowing in and we need to get down below the tree line pretty much immediately. And so uh, I, at this point, I'm regretting every decision I've made in my life. And so we have to then book it back down the mountain. And he's not lying when he says it's far more treacherous going down the mountain. Because all those rocks and boulders and stuff like that that made it so difficult to get up, now, rather than being on like you know, hands and feet, like kind of being able to crawl my way up. Now you're having to walk down and all the weight from, you know, you and your backpack are like behind you. And so every step that you take is unsure at best and those rocks are shifting. And so I fell a lot. My knees and my my backside were just bruised and it was a miserable experience getting back down the mountain. And of course, you're, you're, you're physically spent. So you just feel like jello the whole time you're going down too. So we make it down the mountain. It, it was a good experience. I survived. We didn't die. I didn't get struck by lightning. But uh, even though it was faster to get down the mountain than it was to go up the mountain, it was a lot more treacherous. It was not the favorite part of the experience because at least on the way up, you have this anticipation. You're going to get to the summit. You're going to see this. But on the way down, you're just trying to get back to where you started at the beginning of the day. But I tell you this story because... As I was reflecting on this message, I found in it what I thought was a really good analogy for the Christian life. The psalmist in, in Psalm 119 really does give us the experience of the Christian life as, as he's living it. It's peaks and valleys. It's a mountain range. We spend our lives climbing up to the mountaintop and then having to make our descent back down the other side. The ascent, it's a tough thing to do for the Christian. It can be a lot of work, it can be a grind, but we're powered by this unquenchable desire, this hope of what the summit is going to be like. But it's the descent. Now the summit is behind you, and you're just trying to get back to where you started, and everything is shifting underneath your feet, and you're exhausted. And it's in the descent that we find the most difficult parts of the Christian life. There are times in our lives when we feel God's presence deeply, when our zealousness for the Lord is great, when when our love for the Word is is deep, and, and all we want to do is be with the Lord, and, and, and we hate our sin, and we despise our pride. That's the mountaintop. But then there are times in our lives when we feel that God is distant, and 
and we are more zealous for other things, and we allow our sin to have footholds in our lives. And for, for some of us, those, those valleys, as they were, um, they're few and they're far between, and they don't last for very long. But for many of us, they come along what seems like every other day, and they last forever, and they're terrible. And the hope of the Christian life is not that we won't have these valleys anymore, because uh, in this life, we're going to have those valleys. But the hope of the Christian life is that they become fewer and, and farther between, and, and they don't last as long, they're not as intense. And in our text today, the psalmist is he's coming down the mountain after having spent some time up at the summit and, and relishing God's word and the, and the eternal nature of it. Now he has to make his descent back down the mountain. And as he comes down, he becomes painfully aware of what he lacks. God is speaking to him about what he needs in order to survive the descent. And so that brings us to our text this morning. So starting in in verse 169, if you'll read with me. Let my cry come before you, O Lord, and give me understanding according to your word. Let my plea come before you and deliver me according to your word. My lips will pour forth praise, for you teach me your statutes. My tongue will sing of your word, for all your commandments are right. Let your hand be ready to help me, for I have chosen your precepts. I long for your salvation, O Lord, and and your law is my delight. Let my soul live and praise you, and let your rules help me. I have gone astray like a lost sheep. Seek your servant, for I do not forget your commandments. So this morning, I want us to look at a couple of the lessons that this psalmist is giving us about life in the descent. And the first lesson from the descent is that we must constantly seek a better understanding of God. Verse 169, let my cry come before you, O Lord, and give me understanding according to your word. Now when I read that verse, I'm immediately relieved because Here's a guy who's literally spent 168 verses talking about how much he loves the Word of God and he treasures it in his heart and it's, it's the light for his, his feet and, and the lamp to his path and, and just gushing about how much he loves the Word of God. And then at the very end, he says, God, help me understand. And so if he's literally spent all of this time talking about the Word of God and yet he's still has something left to understand, there's hope for me. I don't know about you, but, but as I've studied the Word of God, especially over the last few years, I've become uh, more keenly aware of how little I actually understand about God. I am constantly challenged by the, the various interpretations and, and the revelations that God and the Holy Spirit have given to me, even, even over passages that I've read a million times. It can become almost exhausting. Just when you think you've got something, God opens your eyes to something new about it. And that's, that is both simultaneously very encouraging and also kind of crazy. But as we study the Word of God, as we, as we traverse this Christian life, as we seek to understand God better, there are two camps that we tend to fall in, two, two temptations that we face on a regular basis. 
as we come face to face with trying to understand who God is, we either fall into the camp of despair or we fall into the camp of arrogance. In the first camp, the camp of despair, the, the difficulty there, the sin there, is that it mistakes humility with despair. I'm sure many of you have at some point in your life, because I know I have, have have seen the task before me of understanding God, understanding his word, his will for my life, whatever it is, and been absolutely overwhelmed by it. I look at all of these different things that that we see in Scripture, trying to understand this Old Testament law and and how does that fit into the New Testament and, and what is Jesus saying here and why does it sound like he's contradicting himself here? Why does it seem like the apostles don't get along and and just all these different things? There's so many things that, especially as a young Christian, would be nearly impossible to try and and fully grasp. And so we just throw up our hands and we say, what's the point? I'm not going to get this. I'll just let, you know, Pastor Greg or Pastor Nathan or somebody just tell me what it means and I'll move on to the next thing. And there's an element of humility in there because we, we think, well, you know, I'm just a finite human being and God is, is infinite and I'm never going to be able to understand it. But it's in that humility that we find despair because instead of using that humility and trusting God will reveal himself to us, we decide we're not going to put in any effort at all. We're just going to get blown around by the winds of whatever teacher is, happens to be uh, in front of us and And we're not going to have any foundation, no solid ground on which to stand. But conversely, then there's the other camp, the camp of arrogance. And I can tell you this is like my autobiography. The camp of arrogance mistakes knowledge for understanding. See, growing up, I, was, I grew up in the church. I was in youth group every week. I was the golden boy. I, I memorized lots of scriptures. I got my gold stars, and all the old ladies in the church just like to rub my head and say, aren't you just such a good boy? And I took that right on into Bible college. And in Bible college, I spent weeks upon weeks in classes uh, just tearing through the minutia of every single passage and parsing verbs and looking at resources and, and listening to sermons about this and and memorizing just incredible amounts of Scripture because I had to for class. I knew a whole lot about the Bible. But the difference between knowledge and understanding is that knowledge puffs up. Knowledge makes us proud. Knowledge is there in the head so that we can recall it to make ourselves look better. But understanding Understanding comes from the heart. You see, I can't stand before you now and I can't recall those scriptures that I memorized. I couldn't tell you how to parse a Greek verb if you asked me to. I've forgotten most of what I learned in Bible college. It's the nature of it. But understanding is different. Understanding comes from the heart. Understanding sees knowledge and says, I'm going to use this not to puff myself up, not to make myself seem great, but I'm going to take this so that I learn to love the Lord better. So that I know how to love my brother and sister better. I 
And it hurts even still to, to talk about those kinds of things because I, I look back at my, my Bible college years and in my growing up and I've, I see the arrogance that I had. I would, I would sit there on a Sunday morning with my preacher when I'd go back home and, and he would open up the Bible to bring the word of God and I would just sit there smugly and arrogantly and just be like, you don't understand this passage. <laughs> and I'm sure there are others like me who, you've heard that story about the Good Samaritan one too many times. And so you'll politely open up your Bible on a Sunday morning and all the while we're just rolling our eyes in the back of our head because we've heard it all before, right? Knowledge and understanding, they're different things. Both camps are sinful. If you allow this false humility to keep you from ever trying to engage with the Word of God, then you aren't trusting the Lord. You're not trusting the Lord to give you the understanding. You're not trusting Him or believing Him when He says, I am going to give you my Holy Spirit so that you can understand my Word and my will. But at the same time, if you're allowing your arrogance and pride to make you believe that you have nothing left to learn, that's sin as well. And I'm guilty of both. True understanding of the Word of God, true understanding, a true pursuit of understanding of the Word of God leads to true obedience of God. It leads to a true peace that sustains us in the midst of trials. You see, the psalmist in our text desires a greater understanding because even after all that he's been through, all the affliction that he's noted, he knows that he still lacks a measure, the full measure of what he needs. And so do we. And what we need is to seek a constant understanding, a better understanding of the Word of God. And that brings me to lesson two from the descent. We are in need of salvation and deliverance. Verses 170, 173, and 174. Let my plea come before you. Deliver me according to your word. Let your hand be ready to help me, for I have chosen your precepts. I long for your salvation, O Lord, and your law is my delight. So what comes from a proper understanding of who God is? A proper understanding of who we are. Sinners in need of salvation. Now, to be clear this morning, I'm not saying that you as believers, as Christians, those who are found in Christ, I'm not saying that you need salvation yet again. The price that was paid by the blood of Jesus is sufficient and will be sufficient. You do not need to constantly seek salvation from the Lord. He has given it. You are secure in your eternal salvation. Romans 8, 1, Therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But what the psalmist means here is twofold. First, we need salvation. As humans, we are in need of a Savior. As, as we spoke about last week, the Psalms have messianic overtones throughout them all, and, and here the psalmist is pleading for salvation because he sees and he hopes what the rest of the Old Testament hopes and anticipates, a Messiah to come, someone who is going to save them because he feels in his bones the same groanings that the rest of creation has, that something is wrong, that we need something to save us. And so he is looking forward to that day. And 
He's anticipating a coming Messiah that would bring freedom from sin. And we understand, as the psalmist does, that we need a Savior as well. So first and foremost, the psalmist is is pointing that loving God. That same God who purchased your freedom with his own blood. The same God who promised to never leave us or forsake us. The same God who will never fail you. So take heart in the midst of trials because God will deliver you. And he will refine you through it. Psalm 46.1, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in times of trouble. That brings us to our third point this morning. The third lesson from the descent is that we need to learn to worship God. Verses 172, 173, and 175, my lips will pour forth praise, for you teach me your statutes. My tongue will sing of your word, for all your commandments are right. Let my soul live and praise you, and let your rules help me. The first question then is, what is worship? If we're going to, if we need to, as the psalmist says, worship God, what does it even mean? The psalmist mentioned singing, but is that it? I I like how John Piper puts it. He, He breaks it down into two categories. There's the acts of the mouth and the acts of the hands. You see, worship breaks down into these two categories. The acts of the mouth, singing and repentance and the proclamation of truth. And then the acts of the hands, sacrificial love for one another and for God. See, it is in how we talk about things and how we treat things and people that we show what we believe to be infinitely valuable in this life. What we worship in this life. And because God is our Savior and our Deliverer, He is infinitely worthy of our praise. And the psalmist recognizes this, so he switches his tone in the, in the psalm from, from one of pleading with God to one of declaring. My lips will for, pour forth praise. Why? Because you teach me your statutes. My tongue will sing of your word. Why? Because all your commandments are right. It is because of who God is and what He has done that he deserves our praise. And it is in worship that we find the foundation for our Christian walk. Once again, James Boyce in his commentary says that if we're going to worship God rightly, then we need to know what pleases God in the first place. And we need to have a heart so filled with love for our God that our worship is genuine and not, not merely a repetition or, or some vain exercise. And so as we look back at the Old Testament, we see God giving us all these, all these rules and, 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 and ceremonial washings and, and orders about sacrifices and all that stuff. And, and it can be confusing and kind of boring to read through at first. But, but what God is doing there is he's giving us instructions on how to worship him. He's saying, I want you to worship and I want you to know how to do it. And so... He gives us all these, these instructions so that we know how to worship him properly. And, and we see examples in the Old Testament of, of what happens when that isn't the case. We see Nahab and Abihu and Korah and Uzziah, those who didn't take it seriously, and they paid the price for it. You see, 
What God wants is what he's always wanted. He wants us to worship him alone. And he wants us to be pure and clean. And so he gave us the instructions from the very beginning on how to worship him. But now, you know, we've spent a lot of time, especially in the book of Hebrews, looking back at that old system and that old way of doing things. And we've seen that it was never meant to be the end-all, be-all. But now, as, as Christians on this side of the cross, we see that Jesus is greater than that old sacrificial system, that his blood has paid the ultimate price, and that now we are clean, we are pure. We have the ability to come before the throne of God and worship without fear of being struck down. Psalm 23, or sorry, Psalm 24, 3 through 4, gives us a glimpse of what, what worship, what God wants from us. Who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart and who does not lift up his soul to falsehood. The reality is that God wants us to worship him exclusively. All those rules that he had made were to purify so that we could come before him, so we could stand and ascend his holy hill, so that we could stand in his presence and worship. So we need to examine ourselves. Because as we come down the mountain, it's easy to lose sight of what is infinitely valuable. Have we erected Asherah poles in our hearts? Have we made for ourselves a golden calf and placed it at the the place of, of value in our hearts? What would our lives show the world that we believe to be infinitely valuable? If we were on the newlywed game or or if we were on family feud, would would someone be able to answer that question for us correctly? What would the survey say that we believe is worthy of our worship? It's easy to worship on the mountaintop. But as we come down the mountain into the valleys below, it becomes much harder because we lose sight of what is infinitely worthy and we become distracted by the finite and the worthless. And So the psalmist tells us we need to learn to worship. And lastly this morning, our final lesson is that we need to Find the strength to persevere. Verse 176. I have gone astray like a lost sheep. Seek your servant, for I do not forget your commandments. One of the most profound books that I had to read in my study in college was a book called Finishing Strong by Steve Farrer. And the premise of the book is is that the Christian life is a race, you know, as cliche as that sounds, but Christian life is a race, and, and the idea is that not a lot of people, especially ministers, finish strong. And so in this book, he gives us examples of, of people who, who were tipped to be the next thing, to be these powerful men of God who were going to proclaim the truth to a new generation, and, and then completely fell off the face of the earth for one reason or another. I remember one story. He talks about three men, um, I think, who all uh, 
who all graduated from Wheaton at the same time, and one of them was, you know, Billy Graham. And, and these three men were all, you know, powerful preachers, great communicators. They were, you know, there was a lot of hope and, and, and promise in their careers as preachers, but, and of the least of them was Billy Graham. And he tells the story of the other two men who, who were really probably better preachers, and that's crazy to think, you know, knowing who Billy Graham was now. But back then, nobody would have expected him to be the guy. And the reason was because these guys were just better communicators. They seemed to have it. But ultimately, they both shipwrecked their faith because of moral failings or burnout. And so it's a stark reminder that no matter how gifted we are, no matter what God has given us, we have to be careful because this journey is not easy. The descent is difficult. And if we're not careful, we may shipwreck ourselves and we may shipwreck the faith of others. But the book isn't just about all the failings. He gives examples of, of many men and women who, who succeed. And, and what I found to be really enlightening was that the important truth he's trying to communicate is that it isn't about how you start, it's about how you finish. And certainly, many of us can recall brothers and sisters through our lives that we've encountered or who we've looked up to who, who fell short. Each of us has these examples, and, and if you've been paying attention the last year and a half, there are so many more men and women who loved the Lord, who ministered well for a time, and then they hit some pocket of, of success, and, and then it became about them, and it became about their cult of personality, and, and then tragedy struck. And they had a moral failing, or they burned out, they walked away from the faith, they deconverted, they committed suicide. The last year has been riddled with stories just like that. It is an unfortunate reality of this life. And why is that? Were these men and women not, not believers? Did they not see Jesus, the same, the same Jesus that we see? Did they, did they not learn the same book that we learned and memorize the same scriptures that we memorized? Did they not love their neighbor as, as we love our neighbor? Their undoing was not because they didn't stay at the summit. It's because they took the descent for granted. They thought the hard work was over. Because they got to the mountaintop and they assumed that they would stay there forever. And each and every one of us faces the same trial, the same danger. psalmist is trying to remind us in this final verse that, that it's the descent that is the most dangerous part of any Christian walk. If you've ever been to, to church camp, you, you have seen this play out in a, in a small way. Growing up, I loved going to church camp. It's a huge part of my life. It's one of the big reasons why I'm still a believer to this day. But I went back to my home camp a few summers ago when I was working for Christian Campus House, and I went as a sponsor, and, and one of my professors was the speaker for the week. 
great preacher, very powerful, very insightful. And if you've been to church camp, you know what I'm talking about. You spend the whole week surrounded by other Christians, and, and you spend time getting preached at maybe two or three times a day, and you have these small group times, and you're building all these great friendships, and, and then by Thursday night, by Thursday night, that, that message has been locked and loaded, and the preacher gives it, and, and there is a huge altar call, and, and they'll, they'll play as many choruses of Mighty to Save as they have to until as many kids come down and come forward. Well, well, this specific week, I mean, literally hundreds of students came forward. And then one student from this big group right down the stage, so we have, we have a building similar to, to like this where you have a stage up front, but like this whole side would be just no walls, it's just chicken wire. And so you can see up the hill of our camp, and at the, the top of the hill there's a cross. So as these students are coming down the aisle and they're bawling their eyes out, and the band is playing, and, and all the leaders are up front receiving them. This one kid, he gets up, and he walks up the hill, and he kneels down at the cross. And soon, a bunch of students start joining him, and, and pretty soon there's not a soul left inside this, this little building shed thing, and they're all up at the cross, all kneeling down. And they're weeping. Even for somebody as, as jaded and cynical as I am, I couldn't help but be moved by it. Seeing the outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon these students, I couldn't help but see visions of, of revival. The Word of God penetrating their hearts. The Holy Spirit convicting them of sin and, and inspiring them to repent and, and, and pushing them into kingdom work. And, and, and praise God, many of those students are pursuing that line even now. But you know how the story goes. Thursday night, they're on fire, and less than 24 hours, they return home back to the same lives that they left. They come back down the mountain, back to where their journey started that, that Sunday. And that fire that had been burning so brightly, that fire that had been, been literally about to burst out of their chest, starts to dim a little bit. And a little bit more each day. Until pretty soon you wouldn't have even been able to tell there was a difference. I've been that kid. I'm sure some of you have been too. The difficult thing is not the ascent. It's not getting to the top of the mountain. It's coming back down. It's not about getting the fire for God. It's not about holding that, that passion for the Lord. It's about keeping it. Even in the midst of great trial. You see, some of us, we just think that if we stay on top of the mountain, everything's going to be just fine. But we see in Matthew 17 that at the transfiguration, the disciples wanted to pitch tents. They wanted to stay there, but Jesus said no. The work wasn't done yet. And so you and I, we can't stay on the mountaintop either. We have to come back down. We have to get our hands dirty in the work of ministry, in the valleys with lost people. And it's in that work that you and I find 
the greatest danger to our own faith. So the psalmist this morning is trying to remind us that we don't have to lose hope. We don't have to lose faith. But it is the word of God that sustains us. We need to learn to to understand God and to worship him. And we need to, to seek the Lord's deliverance through trials. We need to seek him in our own perseverance. But we find that through the eternal word of God. And so I want to to close this this morning with a story. I want to take you back to that summer in northwest Montana. So as a part of this internship, I was um, preaching weekly, and I mean weekly because I wasn't a very good preacher. Um, But I also had the responsibility of camp. And so at this camp, which Camp in Montana and camp in Missouri are very different things. In Missouri, it's just a big open field and it's hot and you just run around and get sweaty all day and then you you pass out or you take a shower by jumping in the pool and then it's all good and then Axe body spray. And and that's really camp. But in Montana, you're literally on the side of this mountain. And there's no open fields to run around and play frisbee or play basketball or anything like that. The The only recreation they had was the lake. And so they had canoes, and you could swim in the lake, and they had those big inflatable trampolines that you could jump on. But the, the real, real attraction was the tubes. The camp director, he had a boat and a couple of tubes, big ones and small ones, and he would pull kids around the lake, and it was every kid wanted to do it, every, every rec time that we had. Well, to, to paint this picture for you, I have to tell you that I've only, up to that point, ridden a tube once in my life. I was eight years old. It was down on Table Rock Lake with my certifiably insane uncle whose only mission was to get us as close to other boats' wake and make us fly off and and almost kill us. And So needless to say, my experience was a bit traumatizing. And so I come into this week, now a 23-year-old man, still afraid of getting on a tube, but... As I was there for about three weeks, I decided I was going to try and just do everything I could not to get out on that tube. And so for the first week and a half or so, I was able to avoid it by humbly accepting the position of being in the boat and and helping students once they'd fallen off and pulled them back in because I'm just a a selfless guy. I wanted them to have fun, you know. After about a week or so, they, they caught on, and they were like, haven't been out on the tube yet. You should, you should go. Come on. So eventually, I had to put on my life jacket and swim out to the, to the tube. And let me tell you, I have never held on to anything more tightly in my entire life. I was a 23-year-old man with an 8-year-old inside of me just screaming. And so as I, again, regretted every decision I made in my life, I'm holding on to this tube, and we start going around the lake, and, and it was fine at first, and I, you know, I'd spent the week kind of watching how they shifted weight back and forth, and I, I was getting the hang of it, and, and then after a little while, the director who's driving the boat, he turns around, and he says, you good? And I'm like, yeah, I'm good. He's like, good, and he just floors it. And so we start tearing around this lake, just going what felt like 100 miles an hour. And I'm holding on to this thing for dear life, and, and I'm trying to shift my weight, but it's not. And then eventually I just tumble. 
And as I come up to the surface with water up my nose and hardly able to breathe, and I'm just like, Ugh! I look down at my hands, and they're just, they're just stuck. So I'd white-knuckled those handles so hard, I literally had to, like, pry each finger back up. tell you that story because I want that image in your head. Because if we've learned anything from the psalmist through our study of Psalm 119, it's that there's only one thing in this life that lasts. And as we come down the mountaintop, the only thing that's going to sustain us, the only thing that gives us life, living word of God. And we have to cling tightly to that word. We have to cling so tightly to Jesus. Just white knuckle it. Because there's nothing else that's going to get us through. And praise God that in his grace he has seen fit to give us his word. It's not a guessing game anymore. So this morning, I ask, if you haven't yet, let go of the things of the world, let go of the finite and the worthless, and cling to the word of God with everything that you have.